Katie is like the most luminous human you could ever meet. She's as brilliant as she is breathtakingly funny. She's fiercely loyal to her students. And by leading with example, she fosters a classroom environment that is always welcoming, equitable, and kind. I would say that Katie is the epitome of cool. Some folks describe Katie's classes as tough and in a way, I get where they're coming from, but I don't think tough is quite the right word. Her classes open minds, foster growth, and help a student see the world with sharper, more discerning eyes. I think that what made Katie unique, or what makes Katie unique, is how engaging she is and how well she engages students and challenges them, but in a way that uh, doesn't feel patronizing, and makes you feel like everybody is all kind of on the same level. With Katie, I feel at home. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, a podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our gorgeous mountain campus. You just heard the voices of Regina Fitzsimmons and Dusty Kime, graduate students in UM's Department of English, talking about our guest on this week's episode, Dr. Katie Kane, Associate Professor of English at UM since 1999. I'm your host, Ashby Kench, Dean of the Graduate School. Every episode, we ask our guests to read a poem or a short passage from literature about rivers. Katie has chosen Tom McGrath's Beyond the Red River, which places the reader in North Dakota, where the Missouri River carves through the prairie. Katie's selection speaks eloquently to the way her identity as a scholar and graduate mentor blends her grounded childhood in North Dakota with her curiosity and experience in the world at large. Her fundamental values of social justice were formed in an Irish Catholic family committed to helping others. But her research interest in post-colonial literature and her voracious intellectual capacity have pushed her into the most pressing contemporary cultural and theoretical problems. We talk about her rough and rocky academic beginnings which exemplify the truth about graduate school that persistence and perseverance are the most important traits to cultivate in young scholars. But we also get into the fascinating new work she launches through her graduate seminars, most recently on auto theory and petro-modernity, as well as her new book project, Deep North. Welcome to Confluence, where we are still unpacking the possibles. Beyond the Red River, Tom McGrath. The birds have flown their summer skies to the south, and the flower money is drying in the banks of bent grass which the bumblebee has abandoned. We wait for a winter lion, body of ice crystals and a sombrero of dead leaves. A month ago, from the salt engines of the sea, a machinery of early storms rolled toward the holiday houses where summer still dozed in the poolside chairs, sipping an aging whiskey of distances and departures. Now the long freight of autumn goes smoking out of the land. My possibles are all packed up, but still I do not leave. I am happy enough here, where Dakota drifts wild in the universe, where the prairie is starting to shake in the surf of the winter dark. Thank you for joining us on Confluence, Katie. I'm happy to be here, Ashby Kinch. Thank you. What an amazing poem, huh? Yeah, it is. Thanks it for is. choosing that. I mean, it, so it's got Red River in the title, and that's the river theme we're always looking for. But the river is kind of a, 
like a um, an implied context rather than the thing itself. What's the thing in this poem? The thing itself is the prairie and and the Dakota prairie specifically, but you know the great American prairie and the way that it functions in its grasses like an ocean, like a river, like a current. And so McGrath, who uh, grew up in North Dakota, um, uh, was very familiar with that kind of um, movement through the grasses and the wind. And of course, the Missouri River cuts the state in two. And then there's the Red River, which flows north, really interesting river, which um, is part of the title. Um, but then also the the you know very cyclic riverine nature of the seasons in North Dakota, which were very distinct and flowed one into the other. So um, I, I chose this poem for the last stanza, which I really love. Now the long freight of autumn goes smoking out of the land, that perceptible felt sense of the departure of a season. Yeah, yeah and each stanza kind of has a, a sense of a, of a season that's departing or hanging on. You have the, the summer at the poolside personified as well. Um, the, I mean, the imagery in the poem is really fantastic as it does take in a, a certain culture too. Uh, yeah. you know, in other words, a, a hard-edged culture. The, you know, the natural images is kind of rolls through there, like you, you brilliantly put it. But there's also a people kind of lurking uh, in the seams of that poem. Yes, yes, absolutely. And people who are departing, the vacationers who have their homes in the uh, uh, lake country of northern Minnesota because the Red River is right on the border of Minnesota and North Dakota. And so that's sort of what's being invoked there as far as I'm concerned. And that's a very complicated landscape. Um, you know, the landscape of settler colonialism in Minnesota. But McGrath himself was an incredibly interesting um, and influential figure in my life and in the lives of a lot of young people going to college at uh, Moorhead State and in Fargo and Moorhead, North Dakota and Minnesota. Yeah, and for people who don't maybe know, know McGrath, and uh, it's going to be a lot of people who aren't in poetic circles. I mean, the poetic circles, people know him. But um, let's talk about that because it connects to your story, right? It's it's your story of searching as an undergrad to kind of find your place uh, at the university level. So McGrath, you kind of had a chance to know him, but you kind of didn't take that chance. I don't know what was wrong with me when I got to Moorhead State. And actually, to to be quite honest... Um, I took my ACTs, and then I did nothing after that, and a next-door neighbor signed me up for college. And <laughs> I didn't actually enroll, and I got an acceptance letter, and I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. It must be that you take the test and they enroll you. <laughs> no. So he paid the fees, et cetera. Um, but McGrath was in the creative writing uh, program at Moorhead State, um, which is now University of Minnesota Moorhead. And... Um, a very popular teacher, but I had some kind of odd disdain for craft at that moment in time. I felt as though if you were a creative writer, you were there already. You didn't need to be taught. And so I certainly wasn't going to take one of those classes. And I also perceived them because they happened a lot outside, at least in the um, seasons when they could as sort of being a self-help group. Like, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be an intellectual, not somebody who talked about their stories, which, um, uh, you know, uh, speaks to my arrogance at that moment in time. Uh, really unwarranted arrogance because I was <laughs> an unbelievably bad student, terribly bad student. Yeah, and, and you kicked around a little bit. And I think that's that's one of the stories we tell on, on this podcast is, you know, how professors end up where they end up, it's not always a linear path. A lot of them, you know, struggle as undergrads or just 
switch fields, find something that interests them later on. And part of what we're doing is sort of demystifying that journey for our graduate students so they can kind of see if they feel like imposters, you know, they can hear these stories of people who kind of kicked around before they found their path. And that's kind of your story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did not know that I wanted to be an English lit major. And I've told the story of how I thought I was in sixth grade going to be the first female pope and therefore ended up taking philosophy. So I'm not going to bore people with that story. Not, so. not the first female pope. Let's not forget Pope Joan. <laughs> yes, but, you know, potentially apocryphal. I right, won't, right, you right. know, the first officially You wanted to be the non-apocryphal yeah, pope. Yeah. Exactly. There's no fun in being an apocryphal no, pope. Yeah. No, no, no. Not, not, not from my perspective. I wanted the, you know, clout. The yeah, clout. Yeah, and the clothing. Yes, and the clothing. Let's the not shoes, forget. The and the wine. The wine. The wine. Let's not forget that. Um, so, um, uh, I, I didn't start out as a lit major. I ended up taking a really amazing uh, class on Russian literature from Chang Lok Chua that um, sort of opened the door, as it were, uh, for me. But that class did not happen until my second attempt at college. I was kicked out twice for I was I, I, once I had below a one six GPA and I appealed it. They allowed me to stay in, and then I immediately went below 1.6 GPA, I mean, I think the next quarter. And they said, well, sorry, you're done. And then I went off and worked in Portland in the uh, folk uh, music um, scene out there in little tavern and, you know, out in Gresham, bartending, blah, blah, blah. And then I soon decided, um, no, I, I, <laughs> I definitely do not like this. So you found your way, which is the part of the journey uh, for you was was finding your way down to Austin. Big change in culture, right? To go from North Dakota to Austin. Tell us about your time there as a PhD student. Who were your intellectual influences and heroes? UT Austin was um, formative for me. It's a you know seven year period that I look back on with great, great, great fondness. Just the intellectual community and the chance to work with. Um, incredibly important scholars, people like uh, Barbara Harlow, the author of Resistance Literature, who was um, in her own way incredibly central to the field of post-colonial studies and very well connected to Gayatri Spivak and Edward Said, people who came to campus and, and, and talked, and relentlessly comparativist. So somebody who put together South Africa with Ireland or Ireland with Palestine or India with South Africa. So um, just uh, really an amazing, amazing scholar. Um, also people like Jose Limon, uh, who um, is a Chicano uh, scholar who um, was on my uh, dissertation committee and uh, just did a lot of work with the border and um, literature of Texas and uh, minor literature, um, as he called it then, thinking about um, canons in a different kind of way. So, mm. um, yeah. So, so much of what we do as professors is kind of navigate that um, that balance between bringing an intellectual culture with us that we come from a certain place. You know, we bring our influences, our of our advisors, our peers, and then kind of figuring out how that works in the context where we land. So you landed here in 1999, uh, in a weird way, kind of a homecoming too, like you had connections already to Montana. So maybe accidental in some ways, but then in some other ways, you know, f a good fit, a perfect fit. Tell us about that move and that transformation and what you brought to this community and how being in Montana has shaped your, especially intellectual work and your graduate teaching. I was very, very pleased to come to Montana. I felt as though my work um, 
comparing Irish and Native um, resistances under colonialism and the kind of strategies that were developed by the settler colonialisms that they confronted. Um, I felt like I would be on ground that would be very, very fertile for that. So obviously, you know, um, the Native communities and their history in Montana would be important. And then places like Butte um, as a a kind of bastion of Irish as well as a whole plethora of other um, ethnic cultures. I, I, I felt like it was a, 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 an intellectual homecoming, but then also um, as somebody who grew up in North Dakota in, in, in the inland west, I um, felt that Montana was very familiar to me. And indeed, my uh, mother had moved to Arlee in 1981, and my youngest brother and sister went to school up in Arlee. So we need to travel away from our homeland in order to see exactly what it means. And I feel like I began to recognize what colonization in the West, what North Dakota, what Montana, what these kinds of spaces actually meant once I moved away and started studying uh, such things as the colonization of Ireland or the colonization of India. So yes, getting that kind of perspective was uh, really crucially important um, for me. Yeah, and you've uh, you and I have talked, of course, hundreds of times. This is the first time it's ever been recorded, right? But um, we've had hundreds of conversations about, um, the, especially the the creative space of our teaching and how we use our teaching to kind of create new ideas, generate new ideas, especially in a community that we form. Um, and I think you have these two wonderful recent cases. Um, now you're teaching auto theory. Let's talk a little bit about auto theory. It's it's going to be new. That term is going to be new to most listeners. You know, they're going to need a little definitional structure, um, and and what that experience of teaching that material has been like for you intellectually and and with your students. Well, I mean, the first thing I want to say about my choice to do auto theory is that I mean, one of my philosophies of, of teaching, if such a kind of discourse could said to um, be in existence is that I like to be in the same position as my colleagues in class. So I don't like the professor-student divide to be too sharp. I mean, I recognize that has to be there. But what I'm trying to say is I like to choose totally new things and, and try and figure out what's going on with you know, uh, a new history, a new set of texts, a new, you know, kind of um, analytic practice. But to answer your question about what exactly is meant by the term auto theory, um, I'll just start provisionally by doing a little, you know, Raymond Williams keyword uh, etymological breakdown. And that is, it's about autobiography and or memoir and theory and how you put those two together. Now, there's a way in which if if one is doing a kind of genealogy of auto theory, Maggie Nelson's text Argonauts is uh, a beginning. But it's the, the genre really stretches back to um, texts like Gloria Anzaldúa's uh, La Frontera, and so it's about putting theory and theory in the sense of critical theories. So philosophers, uh, critical thinkers, um, Nelson, for example. Um, uh, uses uh, the work of Roland Barth a great deal in exploring her own identity and her um, uh, love affair with her partner, Harry. And um, she does so in this really um, innovative 
uh, formally innovative way by um, doing citations in the margins. Citations in the text, but then you know in the margins. She really uses the margin as a as an unclaimed space in her text, and Anzal Dua does the same kind of transmedial work. And so one thing about auto theory is that in its queerness and in its feminist kind of uh, 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 roots, um, it seeks to be personal, so the theoretical is the personal, but also to be very transmedial. So you'll see things like the inclusion of citations, annotations, um, uh, photographs, personal photographs. Um, uh, um, just it's very, very um, transmedial, very rich in terms of the kinds of things that it wants to play with. Um, and uh, there are a whole host of people from uh, uh, Paul Preciado, um, a Spanish uh, auto theorist who uh, documented um, uh, their work with gender hacking, uh, taking a non-medical uh, um, protocol uh, dosage of testosterone across a you know number of months and then kind of recording what that was all about to um, the book we most recently read, Christina Sharp's um, uh, In the Wake on Blackness and Being, uh, in which in her opening chapter, she talks about the long deray of the wake of the ship that crossed the transatlantic, the hold of the ship that across the transatlantic, excuse me. Um, and this opening uh, chapter concludes, it's very brief, concludes, she talks about um, the denial of beingness um, to black people in America, concludes with a series of, I think, four photographs of all of the people that have been killed, um, you know, through medical neglect through police brutality through you know um, just the condition of being black in this country and um, uh, so it's very personal in the beginning um, uh, um, so that is just a kind of initial definition of what auto theory is it's been really so amazing. the writing the liberation there on the genre side is the, the ability to write directly and yes to, and to write from a personal space but not to have that be quote unquote, just personal, that you're bringing in these thought systems behind it and bolstering it. So, so you're recognizing what, of course, all that continental theory was trying to get to anyway, which yes. is to recognize that as an individual, you are enmeshed in these bigger systems. There's, you know, there's no denying that if you're naive to that, then you're not actually practicing the art of any self-awareness at all in the modern world, if you don't recognize. But, but I think what you're pointing to is um, in our generation, and I'm a little bit behind you, but you know, we're in the same generation that way. Intellectually, you felt like you had to immerse yourself in the system itself. Yes. And that included the way of writing about the ideas. Um, and so that there's something kind of liberating about being on the other side of that and not feeling like you're having to kind of imitate the voice of your of your intellectual heroes. You can use them in different ways. And so that that's I kind of love, I mean, you know, your approach to teaching, um, quite similar to mine, you know, you structure a class around a problem that you're then sharing with your students rather than one that you feel like you have already solved, right? Yes. Um, and, and that's a way of keeping uh, the vital energies afloat for you, but also, of course, like you say, bringing everyone onto the same ground. We're, we're searching together. You know, yes. we're, we're, we're working something out together. And you know, so I, I love that about your teaching, and it's, of course, you're well-known in the department for exactly that, creating an energy um, and a cohort in your class that's, that's really vital. Um, you've done similar kind of work around uh, prison 
and prison writing, prison literature. And then, of course, also a, a, a course that really jumped out at me just from the moment I saw the word on the page, petro-modernity. Um, you know, what a powerful concept and what an important way for us to recognize modernity's engine being driven by energy and being driven. So, you know, you could approach that same topic, of course, from a, a geological perspective, you know, a scientific perspective, and even an information perspective, recognizing that what drives all of these computers that we are using every single day is primarily still a carbon-based uh, uh, energy system. So, and I'm only bringing that up because, you know, I was very inspired to kind of think a little bit more about energy, especially in a transhistorical concept context from that class. Um, but it's connected to your ongoing research. And I, I think it, um, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you learned and discovered in Petromodernity and kind of how that fits into this new project that you're working on. Okay, so Petromodernity, uh, uh, this is a class that was really driven, at least initially, by my um, frustration with, even rage at, the um, oil industry in western North Dakota, and then my recognition of how surrounded we are in Montana by the extractive oil industry, and um, wanting to understand that, and wanting to understand it as we do in our field from a cultural perspective, and not just necessarily in the literary sense, but in the sense of uh, cultural uh, sub-practices. So I, uh, uh, I wanted to know, um, you know, what's going on in the man camps? Um, how are uh, uh, women or female presenting people um, being impacted? Um, how do rigors construct their identity? Um, and then also, what regime are we um, inhabiting right now? Um, what energy regime are we inhabiting and what are the consequences? And to some degree, a lot of that is already known and can be known um, in, in uh, very um, productive ways through science. But it's also the case that culture has been really, really neglected in the area of um, energy extraction. So one of the things I like to do in that petro-modernity class is frame the class in its opening moments with Moby Dick so that we can look at what Melville was presenting with regard to the whale oil industry, which is a really important precursor to um, uh, uh, petro-modernity. Not something that I had even really understood until I started trying to put the class together and figure out what texts I wanted to marshal, um, and then ending with something that's really contemporary. And I, what I've decided for this upcoming semester is to close with Dune, because I like to be as contemporary as, as I possibly can be in a class like that and think about what texts today are commenting on you know, petro-modernity. And by today, I mean right now, not you know, 10 years or 10 days ago or two months ago, but like right this very minute, bring bring it in if you if you can find it, you know, students. Um, but I think Dune is a really interesting um, metaphor for oil extraction. It's just that it's spice extraction. So um, that's something I want to work with. And I really take seriously what Amitav Ghosh says about there not being an oil novel. Some people want to argue with that, but they're not being a great oil novel, that the novel form kind of resists um, 
the, the site of oil extraction, or the site of oil extraction, I should say, resists the novel form because it's usually polyglot. Um, the novel likes a singular um, language because it doesn't have a central protagonist. Ghosh is really good at, at, at talking about um, the way in which literature is, is just kind of incapable of fully handling the site of oil extraction. Um, and that isn't always true, but I do think that um, to some degree um, he's got a point there. And then also um, he just recently wrote a book called The Great Derangement. And he says people are going to look back on our culture in years to come and wonder why we weren't dealing with the climate emergency, why we weren't dealing with our addiction to um, carbon culture. And so um, you know, I think uh, that's one of the things that the class is trying to do and trying to do in contemporary moments of cultural consumption. So just to finish and round that sort of um, thought out about uh, how we are sitting in the current contemporary moment of the class, um, one thing we do is we always do a, a playlist, a Spotify playlist. Now that's not an original kind of thing to do, but we have a lot of fun with like what kinds of songs are, you know, um, really um, celebrating or critiquing uh, petro-modernity. And so, you know, the kind of graduate student that is gonna uh, gravitate towards your class is, um, it, has some traits, right? And and I think you've worked with you know, every year. You're you're sitting on multiple thesis committees. What what kinds of traits are you looking for in a graduate student? And what do you expect or hope will happen to them over the course of their time as a graduate student? What I do try, I think, to cultivate is a kind of, and this is going to sound so cliched, but a radical open mindedness because we are encountering all of these new forms, and there's this. Um, way in which the hermeneutics of suspicion has so dominated the academy that, um, and I think I was trained in this in this regard, and you kind of noted this earlier on when we were having a conversation prior to this um, radio show, that um, we were taught to, you know, get our dukes up, get ready, have a kind of critique of something, critique right away, you know, um, you know, punch a hole in it and, you know, figure blame, out. Blame first and work out the rationalization. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And the hermeneutics of suspicion, just for those who, you know, are new to that term, is this idea that you're reading, um, you're almost reading the text symptomatically, suspecting it has motives that are hidden or occluded, um, that are somehow, you know, corrupting or, or influencing negatively. Um, the, the reader. Yes, and auto theory actually, without continuing to go back to that well to, too much, has in its um, investments in affect theory an entirely different way of reading that's about reparations um, in, the, in the kind of um, epistemological sense rather than in the material sense, although the material sense is always kind of lurking in the background. So how can you find ways to um, relate to the text to even love the text rather than to, you know, be in an antagonistic relationship um, with it. And so instead of finding fault, trying to be open to what the text has to say, even if it's distressing, and then being okay with, with the distress, um, understanding that, um, you know, the obstacle is the way um, yeah. that, you know, we are going to be distressed. If you're feeling comfortable, then we're, we're you know, in a place that's uh, not particularly productive. Yeah, so di a certain amount of discomfort and a, uh, coupled with a certain amount of optimism and 
and like I said, open open mindedness, a vulnerability, but then um, an ability to dwell in discomfort. And and I think that's so important. I mean, you're actually hearing this around campus more and more, which I love because it's our terrain and the humanities that um, our students really need to embrace situations in which there's not clear answers, right? Um, and that's really important to say publicly, right? That that's what we do. We traffic in complexity and placing our students in places where there aren't gonna ever be clear answers, that these are things that have to be worked out. Um, that's not, that's a different kind of pedagogy, right? Than, than a math class or a STEM class. Um, even though psychologically, those programs will say the same thing, that they, yes. they value students, for example, who can dwell in discomfort, right? Yes. Um, and that's what, we, that's what we specialize in, right? If we're doing our job right, yes. actually, is we're teaching our students how to navigate that discomfort and convert it into an, a productive interpretive act. Let's finish by talking a little bit about this book, Project Deep North. Um, as soon as you told me that was the name of your book, I instantly knew not what it meant exactly, but what it was trying to do, right? That is inventing a northern tier equivalent of the Deep South and recognizing there is a culture there um, that you're book is kind of critically excavating that is on analog with the deep south in terms of how um you know a certain ideology uh, a certain uh let's say powerful historical forces shaped an ideology that persists over decades even a couple of centuries well beyond reconstruction and civil rights movement so so tell us about the deep north what's that side of it look like what is the project attempting to do and where's it headed yeah um I, I'm very, very excited about this project. Um, I feel like it's in some ways a culmination of everything that's gone before it, um, with the exception of the Irish piece. Um, it used to be kind of a joke when I was growing up. Uh, you know, we live in the deep north. It's almost the same as the deep south in terms of its whiteness, and so starting from the sense of a kind of regional specificity that seemed so clear to me, um, both while I was in it and then even more so after I left it, um, and trying to put my hands on the outlines of that. So a, a particular attitude toward whiteness that emerges out of settler colonialism, a, a kind of sense of whiteness that, that's reflected in things like the Northwest Territorial Imperative, which is a popular um, idea among white supremacist groups that a white homeland can be set up in a, a, a group of states that cross the American-Canadian border, states and provinces, obviously, that have a low population or are perceived to have a low population of people of color. So um, uh, an imperative to reclaim the Northwest, Oregon, uh, Washington, Idaho, Montana, parts of North Dakota, Alberta, uh, Manitoba, um, and then to set that up um, in this, you know, uh, really appalling way as a place for white people to, you know, um, reassume uh, uh, the mantle of America. So that kind of thing really interested me. Like, what exactly is going on with whiteness in this particular um, part of the country? And I do believe that it's very, very different from, say, the whiteness that obtains in. Uh, the Deep South or Texas, for example. Yeah, and what it, and slavery not being its pole, but settler colonialism being its yes. major pole. And that's still, in other words, in other parts of the country, um, people may have repressed the original 
uh, settler colonial project that displaced native peoples. But in the northern tier, that's not that's not a fantasy you can indulge, right? In other words, it's it's a primary. And then there's another aspect of of northern tier whiteness that comes from the Scandinavian culture, right? That is that is a group of people who, you know, like say what you want about the casseroles and the kindness, right? Also bring with them a certain um, self-validating virtue discourse that we do things the right way. Um, you know, that that's one of the poles that operates to kind of mystify whiteness in the North. Yeah, and I mean, I think that I think that it's become a real kind of hash at this moment in time. But I do think that, yes, in terms of uh, someplace like North Dakota, the Scandinavian, and Eastern Montana, the Scandinavian and German uh, uh, influence is really strong. And, and I won't go into this in great detail, but you can see that in some of the iconography of white supremacist groups. And it's absolutely the case that Montana has more hate groups per population than any other state in the nation, which I think is a shocking um, figure for uh, people to contemplate um, people in the state to contemplate because we as northerners like to kind of shove that off into exactly. you know other places yeah. and we, we and you're exactly right the primal um uh, 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 theft of the land from indigenous people is not something that you can ignore here in um, montana or in a place like north dakota or idaho or wyoming because you have tribes that are forcefully reclaiming their own sovereignty, um, stepping into it, and engaging in all kinds of incredible um, uh, reclamation projects, whether it has to do with water, um, getting rid of, rid of uh, oil companies on their land, their language. Um, Reintroducing the bison, yes. re recultivating bison. Yeah. And, and I'll and just say, nation. I'll just say too that yes, absolutely. And I'll just say that uh, um, I went out to uh, Dixon the other weekend and trumpeter swans all along the Flathead, just as we heard when we went up to SKC. So the Salish, um, uh, 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 Kootenai, um, uh, Ponderay uh, tribe on the Flathead, uh, affiliated tribes, um, brought back the trumpeter swan um, and are responsible for the return of the trumpeter swan throughout uh, Western Montana. So the kind of way in which a rising uh, tribal sovereignty and a rising indigenous resistance that's been written about by people like Glenn Sean Coltard in um, uh, Redskins White Masks or Nick Estes, um, our uh, past is the future, talking about Standing Rock. So yes, there's white supremacy, but there's also this incredibly rich, incredibly successful indigenous resistance from Idle No More to um, uh, uh, the work at Standing Rock and then uh, the work around MMIW um, That's, issues. That's uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. Yeah, and, and uh, the, 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 the name is um, a little bit uh, um, unstable right now, MMIP sometimes, because um, uh, the desire is to indicate that it's more than just you know women. It's female presenting people. It's queer people. It's children. It's men sometimes. Um, but um, so not only is there white supremacy, but there's also this indigenous resistance and indigenous sovereignty that matches and meets the kind of official aspects of the state. And then just as in the deep south, there's an, a specific economic matrix. And I mean, it's not quite as, you know, um, singular or as clear as cotton and cotton being king in the South, but it's oil. It's about oil and it's about mineral wealth um, in uh, uh, this region. 
Um, Extractive industries and, and, yes. and pulling from the land in a way that's going to destroy the land. Yes, absolutely. At, at a fundamental level. Yes, absolutely. And the way that uh, tribal nations are or are not, you know, making a contract or refusing that kind of um, uh, 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 connection. I've had one chapter uh, published uh, in American and Indian Quarterly on a uh, a really amazing local Salish artist, Corwin Claremont. Um, his uh, uh, conceptual and tribal work uh, documenting a journey up to the Alberta tar sands and its connection to um, Standing Rock. And then I have a second uh, chapter that I've almost completed, which is on the ways in which, um, and I think any Missoula uh, uh, high school student or any Western Montana high school student would be interested in this, the ways in which um, the West is being sold back to tourists and to white Montanans at the old Montana uh, prison, prison hobby shop in um, Deer Lodge, Montana. Um, if you go down there, you will find a very interesting version of the West that is ready and open for your um, laying down some dollars to walk away with a horsehair uh, keychain fob or um, a Cheyenne rattle, if you'd like. Um, and it's about the appropriation of uh, the labor of indigenous people, in incarcerated indigenous people, as well as other folks in uh, the Montana State Prison. So. Yeah. Thank you for that. So look for that, listener. By the time this podcast comes out, it may be out, actually. And uh, you're going to record, I hope, some of the material on December 13th, and we can include links to that as well, potentially, sure. on the show notes, video and audio. I would like to. I just also want to say, too, that I've been inspired by our collective at the University of Montana. And by our collective, I mean everybody who's working in our community, uh, faculty, staff, um, somebody like Cole, who's here running the sound, um, and students, um, and, and Cole is also a student, um, to do creative work as well. So I'm publishing my uh, nonfiction, my creative nonfiction, and my fiction um, in ways that I had never expected to do. But I think that that's something that's really unique about our graduate program is the way in which it is really radically open to production in multiple ways. Like you can cross genre boundaries and you're not going to be asked to explain why you're doing that. You're going to be allowed to move like a river across these you know, boundaries. And I, th I think you do that in your own work, Kinch, is you're, you're not um, you know, confining yourself to one particular space. You're, you know, um, vast in your your production yeah and, and for um you know prospective graduate students listening to this whether they want to work in the mfa program and and work in the genres there poetry nonfiction, fiction or do an ma in literature or do an ma in teaching that's the culture we're trying to promote in the department is radical exchange and interchange between and among faculty and between and among students yeah awesome so we end every show Okay. Same way with our quick hitters. You ready for these? I'm so ready for them. Morning or night person? Both. How do we do that? We just go nap to- Nap a lot? No, we don't nap a lot. We just go to bed at the same time, you know, and we get up at the same time. Okay. And we have a regular life and we enjoy the evening and we enjoy the morning. All and right. we don't, you know- We don't fight about it. We don't right. fight about it. Okay. Winter or summer? 
Oh, winter, winter, yeah. winter, winter. I mean, mm. I love summer, but a bit. No, I mean, uh, winter, absolutely. Like I was out in California recently and everybody was going on and on about the different fruits. And I said, I would give up all these fruits for snow. Yeah. You know. Sunrise or sunset? Both. All right. Yellowstone or glacier? Glacier. Finally, we got one you didn't say both to. <laughs> well, winter. Um, what's your favorite Montana river and why? Um, you know, I uh, was born in Chicago and then a uh, little time in Minneapolis, grew up in Bismarck. So I spent all my time on the big rivers of, of this country, of this continent, the Mississippi and the Missouri. And the Missouri in particular, I love um, and I'm also frightened by and it's um, uh, real, real opacity. It's definitely the big muddy. Um, and I always had in my mind that, you know, that would be my, my resting place. There's a place called Double Ditch north of um, Bismarck. And I thought that's where I'm going to be, you know, here are the instructions. This is what I want. It's the middle fork of uh, um, the Flathead River. I've spent some time on that and I just, and not where everybody is rafting, a different section. And I just find it to be Astounding. My favorite river, Middle Fork of the Flathead. Fantastic. Sorry, Beautiful that wasn't a quick take. It's a great one, though. What's your favorite Montana mountain range and why? Um, I really love the missions um, because there's family history there. Um, my brother calls that his home range, slightly problematic since he's a white boy who grew up in our Lee, but um, he knows it really, really well. And we've gone hiking up there a lot around the Mission Falls up to Lucifer Lake. And I love the way they look. And I also love the way they produce um, just this strong uh, emotional reaction, people, as you crest up over Mission Hill, people always gasp, especially if they're uh, snow uh, capped. But I've done uh, it dozens of times, and I never fail to be moved by that yeah. exact moment. What's the one piece of music you'd be willing to listen to for eternity? Um, <laughs> eternity. You know, would anybody want to do anything for eternity? Um, I probably. Uh, you know, Blood on the Tracks. That just, that album um, was really important to me back when record players uh, were around and I listened to it repetitively. And it has everything to do with the fact that in addition to it being in musically just amazing, it's very strongly narrative. And I would just say that my favorite song is Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts. And that's a song about the West. Uh, I mean, even if it's imaginative, Jim, Big Jim owns a diamond mine. There's no diamond mines in the West. But it's, you know, about poker and about casinos and about bosses and about uh, outlaws. And, and uh, you know, I can probably sing. I'm not going to visit that on you, but I can probably sing the whole thing. Come on, give it a crack. <laughs> no. Come on, come on. Let's <laughs> no, hear it. No, no, no. Just, a, just a chorus. <laughs> no, I, I'm really not going to do that, Kent. You cannot uh, uh, tempt me into it. What's the <laughs> voice you hear in your head when you go to sleep at night? Um, uh, the voice that I hear in my head always, always, always is my father's. My father um, uh, was the youngest uh, uh, boy in a family of eight. Um, often uh, the family went without food. My father sometimes grew up without shoes, had to sleep out in the porch. Um, and he was very insistent in, in his short life, he died when he was 36, on a set, uh, limited, um, un breakable set of values. Um, and some of them are 
you know, not of any use anymore. Like you're an Irish Catholic Democrat is not exactly um, <laughs> where I'm at right now. But my dad always said, you always side with a little person, no matter what. You always side with a little person. You always take care of your family. You're always uh, slightly suspicious of authority. Make sure you do not just say yes to authority. Um, and you're loyal. You, you pick the people that, you know, are your folk and you stay loyal to them. He had a real commitment to social justice that came through that phrase, you always side with the little guy. Who's the person who is not, you know, doing well? That's who you need to attend to. Um, and that, that set of like sort of ethical imperatives um, just, my dad had a way of teaching you how to do that. And my brothers and sisters and I have gone back to those precepts again and again and again. And each of my siblings, um, I think, tries to operate out of that. And so it's the voice of my father and then my siblings as we have conversations about how should we act here? What should we do? I can tell you've been listening to that voice. Anyone who's <laughs> watched you operate knows you listen to that voice and act on it. Thank you for joining us on Confluence, Katie. You're welcome, Ashby. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you, Cole, for helping me out. If you like what you've heard, you've got Cole Grant to thank. He's a student in our MFA program in media arts, and his editing touch makes all of this sound flow. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, and intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. We'd like to thank UM's College of Business for support and production of this episode, which we recorded in Studio 49 of the Gallagher Business Building. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google by searching Confluence University of Montana, or click a link at the Confluence website, umt.edu grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the float.